Good afternoon and welcome to the Legal Eagle Show. This is your host, Tony Dodds. Uh, to call into the show today, the number is 863-682-1430. That's 863-682-1430. To contact me at my office, the number is 863-688-2389. That's 863-688-2389. My office is conveniently located at 904 South Missouri Avenue in Lakeland. That's directly behind the old Southside Dry Cleaners that's on South Florida Avenue. The parking lot of my office butts up to the back of their building across a little bit of an alleyway. Today, I thought we would go into, uh, for lack of a better way of phrasing it, the nuts and bolts of a divorce. And that's basically trying to say, I want to give a general overview of everything that has or needs to be dealt with in divorces, uh, in most cases anyway, and, and it'll give people a better sense for why people, attorneys have to charge so much to do these cases anymore. I literally tell my clients at the outset of a divorce that we're probably going to kill an oak tree in paper before the end of the case, simply because of the amount of paperwork that has to be done. And a lot of people go, oh, but we're going paperless. No, it, it's still got to be done on paper scan back in because the people are, are swearing under oath to parts of these pleadings, and then it has to be served on the other party. And we have not done what we call electronic service or initial electronic service of process yet uh, as it would relate to divorce proceedings in the state of Florida because you need to show proof of the actual service of process on the other party. Uh, now, there's some ways of avoiding some of those issues, if we know that there's another attorney involved on a case uh, and we've confirmed with them that they will accept service on behalf of their client, uh, we might be able to arrange for them to get the pleadings emailed over and then sign. <coughs> oh, excuse me. Sorry about that. No, it ain't COVID. Um, they might sign off on an acceptance of service just on an email type basis. But generally, I would tell you probably... 95% of the divorces we see now, if not more, still require actual service of process of the initial pleadings uh, on the opposing party so that they have a return of service to show the court that they actually knew what was going on. And so, yes, a lot of paperwork is involved in these, and it's part of what I'm going to be going over uh, during this next hour of the broadcast, uh, as well as just talking about some of the functional issues of divorces um, before you can even have a divorce, you actually have to have a marriage. That seems kind of uh, obvious, but there's nothing obvious when you're dealing with clients. I, I have to go over things with them, and part of what we're asking for from them is when they were married and where they were married. And again, some of that may have relevance as to how we deal with the divorce. But I want to know how long they've been married, so by asking when they were married, we can calculate how long they were married. Um, and and it, it has to do with, again, part of the issues of the divorce. So we're asking that, but there, there legitimately has to be a marriage. And I, I don't get the calls as often now as I did probably five years, 10 years, and 15 years ago, or even 30 years ago, about common law marriage. There is no such thing in Florida. We do not recognize common law marriage. Now, we've had people that move into the state of Florida that may have been in a state 
that recognized common law marriage. And, and if somebody goes, okay, what's common law marriage? That's where you live with a particular person in a, a state of acting like you're married for a period of time, uh, but, but without going through the formal process of getting married, having a marriage license and going through and, and submitting the marriage license. It, it's people that just live together. And there are some states that still recognize it. Well, then the issue becomes, or what we get confronted with here occasionally, can they divorce here if they've moved here? And the answer is no, because they're not legally married as far as what Florida would consider it. And Florida is not going to recognize that common law marriage from another state. Uh, now, they can go back to the state that that common law marriage existed in potentially, and deal with a divorce there subject to jurisdictional requirements of living there for periods of time. But they cannot do it here because our court doesn't recognize it. So you have to be legally, lawfully married here uh, in order to get a divorce. And so if somebody comes in to me and says, oh, I've been living with so-and-so eight years, I want to divorce them, I look at them and go, there's nothing to divorce them from. You may own property together. That doesn't mean that this court can deal with that. There are other courts that can deal with the division of jointly owned property, but it's not the family law court that does that. And so as a result, there is no vehicle to deal with those issues. It's only if you have been lawfully married to somebody else that you can get a divorce. One of the issues that some of my clients come in, especially the party that's been served with a divorce petition, they ask, well, can you make the other side go to counseling with me? And I, the answer I give them is, no, I can't make the other side go to counseling with you. If you've not already gone and they choose that they do not want to go to counseling, a court could technically order them to go to counseling with you. But in this case, and in our jurisdiction and most of the jurisdictions, rarely will our judges order counseling unless the parties both agree to something like that. Uh, simply because all this is a no-fault state. We do not have to prove grounds in this state. All we have to do is have one of the two parties file a petition that alleges that the marriage is irretrievably broken, and those are the two key operative words. The marriage is irretrievably broken. If one of them swears to that, that's all that's necessary to go forward with a divorce. You do not have to prove grounds like uh, somebody else is having a relationship with somebody else. You don't have to prove that one of them's mentally insane or mentally infirm. Uh, none of that stuff has to be proven to get a divorce. You simply come in and say, I want a divorce. Our marriage is irretrievably broken. So that's part of the reasons that the courts are hesitant to try to order counseling unless the people actually want to go to counseling, in which case they could have done that without the court ordering them to do so. Uh, after the break, we're going to go into some of the issues of the divorces as I see them in what I consider to be the order of importance. You've been listening to Talk Radio 96.7 FM and 1430 AM. Welcome back to the Legal Legal Show. This is your host, Tony Dodds. To call in, the number is 863-682-1430. That's 863-682-1430. To contact me at the office, the number is 863-688-2389. That's 863-688-2389. We've been talking about what's called, the, what I'm calling, the nuts and bolts of a divorce. 
and part of the reason I'm doing this is because I often have people come in, and when I tell them how much it's going to cost, they about pass out. Well, I'm actually on the on the cheap end of doing these things, believe it or not. I don't know why I'm that way. I think I'm getting ready to raise my rates because as I was doing the prep for the show, I started seeing how much I actually had to do on each one of these, and I said, wait a minute, I'm way too cheap on what I'm doing. So anybody that calls me from this point on, your rate is probably going to be higher than what it would have been last week because I've realized how much I've been selling myself short on these things. But the long and the short of it is there's a number of issues that we have to evaluate on a divorce, and I do this with each client coming in, depending on what's relevant to them. Uh, The first thing that I look for is to see if they have any children because it's part of my fact sheets that we have them fill out when they come in. Do you have any children with this person? And it really doesn't matter if those children were born before or during the marriage if they are the children of the other party. If they were born before the marriage and the marriage occurs then, the marriage ratifies the fact that the person is the father if they are, in fact, the father. Now, if this kid's somebody else's and then there's a marriage, that doesn't take care of that issue. So we're not having to do a separate paternity issue, so to speak. Uh, The marriage can then ratify the fact of the fatherhood, and it can be dealt with through the dissolution proceeding. But I'm looking to see the, the ages of the children, um, you know, you may have one as old as getting ready to graduate from high school, and they have a newborn. I, I've literally seen that. Um, you could have two kids that are only two years apart. So I'm looking to see the ages. I talk to the client about whether it be the male or the female, uh, whether or not they have worked out anything about time sharing. We used to hear the words custody and visitation. Those words really do not apply anymore within Florida uh, with, with what our court system does now. We call it time sharing, and it's more to give it a better tone to show that not one party has the ability to dictate to the other party how things are going to be. It's, it's, they're both parents, so they should both be equally or as much as possibly uh, closely equal in their involvement with their children's lives. Now, it doesn't always work well because of distances and the relationship of the parties. But it, the courts encourage the parties to try to work with each other as, mo- as much as possible uh, simply because it's best for the kids. These kids from a healthier household whether it, or households, as it may be with a divorce, tend to do better not only in school but in life than kids that are coming out of households where the people can't stand each other and won't even talk to each other or constantly making allegations about each other. So what we're looking at is if they're going to be able to work something out on timesharing or not. The words custody and visitation really don't apply anymore. I even had to retrain myself on how I address those issues to my clients. I didn't want to use the word custody or the word visitation because I didn't want it to confuse them in the process. So I talked to them about timesharing. Then we look at the issue of child support. That's what potentially one parent may have to pay to the other as a means of being able to help support the child or children. And a lot of people go, well, we've got 50-50 timesharing, so why am I paying child support? Well, if that party is making $75,000 a year and the other one's making $25,000 a year, 
it, it doesn't matter that there's 50-50 timesharing. You can't have the kids going to one household that's struggling and going to the other one that is not. And it's not that we're trying to make them both struggle, but we're trying to make it as comfortable for the kids as possible at both locations. And the kids are entitled, not the mother or the father, but the kids are entitled to the type of support to where they will have a household at each household where they can actually feel comfortable and be at the best for both. So the person that makes the 75000 a year is still going to have to contribute to the support of those kids when they're at the other household in the form of child support, even if they have 50-50 timeshare. And if people go, what's that? Okay, 50-50 means they're at one party's uh, half the time and at the other party's half the time. That's not the case in every situation. I'm using it simply for demonstrative purposes because that makes it easier to explain to people. One of the other things that we have to deal with is the issue of health insurance. The kids need to be covered. Uh, I understand that health insurance is expensive, but actually health insurance for children is relatively cheap, and we have some different forms here in Florida that are extraordinarily cheap for the benefit that they actually provide. I think kid care is the name of the one main group that we see used a lot by families to be able to help get insurance, even if the two parties themselves do not have health insurance. And so, uh, and now that is an, a, a quick separate issue I want to touch on. Some parties want to keep their health insurance that they had with the other party through their employer. That is only available for a limited time in Florida. You cannot force a private entity to be able to continue coverage for somebody that's no longer technically related because of a divorce. So there is such a provision called COBRA. Uh, it's probably going to be a whole show by itself someday or a half a show where I can go into it. It deals with the Consolidated Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act and the ability to try to help people bridge over on uh, divorces to keep them insured for a period of time until they can find their own insurance. but And it gets expensive real quick. Uh, but that's not related to the children itself. That's more related to the other party that would normally be the one that's not insured because they're not the ones carrying the insurance to begin with. They were part of maybe a family plan. Well, they can be covered for a period of time. It's under COBRA. It is expensive. Uh, but it's not something you can force down the throats of the private insurance industry for very long, and that's why it's limited in time period. So the biggest issue that I have to deal with with clients right off the bat, though, is their children, the number of children. Um, obviously, a kid that's 16 and a kid that's 2 may have different actual visitation schedules. And I say visitation here. I am throwing that wrong word in, time-sharing schedules. And a lot of it has to do with 16-year-olds have their own agenda that they're dealing with in high schools, including functions. Uh, they have extracurricular activities. They have friends. So sometimes we order them to go to a certain time-sharing schedule. It may be completely different, though, than what you can do with a two-year-old. So there's a lot of factors that go into the time-sharing issue with children and how those are going to be dealt with. Now, a lot of times, one of the two parents is designated as the primary residential parent or the parent the kids are designated to for school zoning purposes. 
And the reason that occurs is we don't need the two parents getting into a fight one day over where the kids are going to go to school. Say the father lives in Kathleen High School's district and the mother lives in Lakeland High School's district. And there's no designation that's been made. Well, either one of them can go down and put the other one or put the kids into the school that they they happen to live in their zone. So the court will make a designation oftentimes, or the parties can agree to this too, as to which one of them they will use for purposes of school designation. All uh, One of the other issues we have to deal with as it would relate to children is who gets the tax write-off for the children each year. And if there's two kids, oftentimes one will get one child and one will get the other, and then when the oldest age is out, they rotate the other one, meaning the younger one. That is just a generalization, though. If the incomes are such that there's a significant need for one to get the income tax designation for both children to help reduce the tax burden, and the other one maybe not making much money at all, there's ways that the court can go ahead and order that party that makes more to get both of the children, uh, but it may be having to be made up with a little bit higher child support uh, uh, providing amount uh, to be able to help offset not being able to get that extra child tax credit or child tax deduction. So, again, as you can see, just within the issues of children, there is a phenomenal amount of things that have to be looked at, worked on to be able to deal uh, with as it would relate to people's kids. And that's assuming they have kids. Now, if they don't have kids, we can totally skip that section uh, of a divorce and move on. Uh, If there are children, we have to fill out a form that's called the Uniform Child Custody Jurisdiction and enforcement act form and what that does is it shows where the kids have lived for the last five years there's a reason behind that we have to make sure this court is the appropriate court and jurisdiction to handle the divorce involving these kids Uh, if you know mom moves here with the kids and is here for say six months which gives her the time period to file the divorce but the kids had actually resided somewhere else for four and a half years, this court's going to be a little iffy on wanting to deal with doing the divorce and and dealing with the child custody and or timesharing. I used the word wrong again. Here we go with custody. The child timesharing issues here if the kids have been living in, say, Tennessee. So that's why we have to fill that out so the court will have an accurate picture of how long the children have been within the jurisdiction of this court. After the break, I'm going to go into some of the other things we deal with, such as divisions of assets and alimony. You've been listening to Talk Radio 96.7 FM and 1430 AM. Welcome back to the Legal Eagle Show. This is your host, Tony Dodds. We've been discussing some of the nuts and bolts of a divorce, and and I'm talking about the bare-bones structure of how this works and why it costs so much to get. Uh, it's a whole lot cheaper to marry them than it is to divorce them. And there's an answer behind that. All it costs is you the marriage license to go down and pay for it. I don't even have a clue. You'd have to get with the clerk of the courts and find out what they cost now. It's probably 100 or less, maybe 100 and a quarter. I don't know. And that's it. If you want to go for a honeymoon somewhere, I guess you got that and whatever the preacher is going to cost. If you do a, a marriage in a, in a church or if you're just going to get a justice of the peace or 
get one of the clerk notaries. I mean, anybody practically like that that is authorized to do divorce, uh, marriages can do them, and they don't charge much to do them. It's a lot cheaper to marry them than it is to divorce them, and there's a reason why. Unless you are getting a prenup, and that's another story for another show, prenuptial agreement, where you really need to have full and complete financial disclosure before you sign an agreement on how you deal with marital assets, anticipating that a divorce will occur. Now, that's why we, you know courts don't really like them because you're expecting it to land in divorce court. But, you know, unless you're dealing with having to have one of those things prepped and there's a whole lot of assets to deal with, you don't have legal fees to get married. You have legal fees and processes to have to go through to break that marriage, though. And we've talked about children. One of the other big and next big issues to deal with, and that's dealing with assets. I will have people come in and I'll say, okay, what kind of assets do you have? Well, we've got a couple of cars. Okay. And I'll talk about that. We get the type of car, whether they owe any money on it, what kind of equity is in the car, which is the amount of money that the car might be worth more than what is owed on it, whose names the cars are in so we can figure out the titling on it later on. And I go, what else do you have? Well, not really anything. And I said, do you own a house? Oh, yeah, I own a house. Well, that's an asset. And we have to determine whether it was bought during the marriage or before the marriage and even if it was bought before the marriage, was there ever any conveyance of any part of the interest in it during the marriage to the other party? There's just a lot of issues that have to be dealt with in the form of a house. Uh, if money is still owed on it, who's going to get the house as part of the divorce? Or do we need to file the separate count of what's called a partition action that can be done within the divorce to have the house sold and any equity split, if there's no equity, at least it would cause the debt to go away that keeps these two parties joined at the hip once they've bought it. So we got to deal with the house, whether it needs to be sold off, partitioned, uh, whether one of them's going to buy out the other one, and even if they're going to buy them out, what's going to happen with the debt that's owed on it if there's any debt still owed. Uh, the valuation of what the house is going to be worth. I mean, a house in Polk County that was worth $300,000 two years ago or three years ago may be worth $400,000 now. And no, you can't always rely on what's on the tax assessor's website. That's a tax assessed valuation, not actual valuation of what the place might be worth. Uh, most oftentimes, the tax valuation is way less than what the actual valuation of a piece of property is. So you got to figure out with how you're going to evaluate it, whether you're going to have somebody come out and do a valuation of the property, or are you going to stipulate to using one of the online service valuations, which may or not be very accurate because they're taking pictures from the outside and doing an evaluation based on, on a generalization of the community. Uh, and as I said before, we have to determine whether it was marital or premarital property, meaning whether it was acquired during the marriage or before the marriage. We're also looking at all kinds of other assets, stocks, bonds, bank accounts, uh, all kinds of vehicles, not just cars, but motorcycles, RVs, boats, uh, trailers, and cash is an asset. A lot of people don't realize that Cash or whatever's in a bank account somewhere is an asset. 
So dealing with the division of assets itself, we're having to have the clients, and this is part of the mandatory requirements within a divorce, fill out what's called a financial affidavit. And there is certain mandatory disclosure that is required for us to produce bank statements, uh, titles, deeds, retirement account information, and that was going to be my next big highlight out of this. A lot of people don't realize that their retirement is an asset. And I'll have John Smith come in and say, well, I've worked for Publix for 30 years, but I've only been married for 20. And so she shouldn't get my retirement because at least some of it is premarital. And I look at him and go, well, your, your assessment is only partially correct. She would not be entitled to any type of uh, evaluation of that for that first 10 years. We would have to get a determination from the retirement holder as to what the amount or what the valuation of that retirement was for that first 10 years. But the, the part that occurred during the course of the marriage is a marital asset. And it is subject to equitable division by or distribution by the court. What that means doesn't necessarily mean 50-50, but it's a starting point for the court to look at and try to equitably divide the assets between the parties. And I'm going to give you a kind of a funny story on this one. Um, it's one of our local judges, and he's not one to pull punches as it would relate to these types of cases. And when we're in for a case management conference, he used to look at both of the parties. And I'm going to be a little bit sexist in the way I'm telling you this right now, but it's it tends to be the way it works here in Polk County, where the male will come in and he may have a gun collection that includes 30 guns. And the wife may have jewelry and uh earthenware or something, whatever you want to call it, that's also worth a lot of money. And they are fighting over everything. They don't want to agree on anything. Um, one's trying to leverage the other, and the other one's trying to leverage the other one. He will look at both of the parties, and he said, folks, I, that's fine. I get paid to sit here and figure out your problems when you can't figure it out. But he'll look at the guy then, and he'll say, I have been known to award guns or gun collections to the other party, meaning to the women. And he looks at the woman and he says, I have been known to award the jewelry and the earthenware over to the other party. And it's up to you. If you guys want me to draw the line in the sand and figure out who gets what, I'll do it. But none of you are going to be happy, ultimately, probably with what I do, because you didn't have any input into it. You threw it into my lap for me to have to make the decision on this. And it's amazing how many times that at least some of it can get resolved after that. Not all of it necessarily, but a chunk of it. Because they all of a sudden get to hear it from the judge that they may not get what they want. And in fact, they may get absolutely everything that they don't want. And the other party may get the same thing. So the reality hits home that the court can make that determination and will make that determination. And as long as it is an equitable division, the appellate courts are not going to overturn it. Whether it made realistic sense or not is a whole different issue. But as long as it's an equitable division of the assets, the, the appellate courts are going to say there's no violation of the statutory authority or the constitutional authority of the court. And retirement accounts are, in fact, assets of a marriage if they accrued during the course of the marriage. 
So it's something that's got to be divided. It's got to be calculated. It's got to be figured out. It does require discovery from a third party, which can include subpoenaing information from those third parties. And guess what a subpoena is, folks? It's paper. And a lot of times we're getting paper back from the retirement companies then so that we can actually read the stuff and understand it. It's not the easiest things to dig through at times. Uh, ultimately, if the court does award part of a retirement, either by virtue of a, 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 an agreement or it's just part of the award for equitable distribution, there'll be what's called a quadro that's entered, which is a qualified domestic relations order. These private entities, most often than not, have their own format. And if you try to put it in in a format that's different than what they accept, they will not accept it. They will send it back, and you have to keep redoing it until you get it into the format that they will accept. So, again, another headache that's attached to the dissolution process. And so we've talked about children. We've talked about division of assets. And after the break, I'm going to hit the nasty word called alimony. But you've been listening to uh, Talk Radio 96.7 FM and 1430 AM. Welcome back to the Legal Legal Show. This is your host, Tony Dodds. To call in, the number is 863-682-1430. To contact me at my office, the number is 863-688-2389. That's 863-688-2389. I'm located at 904 South Missouri Avenue in Lakeland. We've been talking about the nuts and bolts of a divorce, and we've talked about children, which I consider to be the primary issues in a divorce if there are children involved. Then the division of assets, which is, again, a big issue within a divorce uh, because there's so many different types of things that qualify as assets. A lot of people go, well, my guns aren't assets. Yeah, they are. Guns are assets, just like china in a cabinet is, jewelry is. All of those things are actually assets. In fact, your furniture in your house is technically an asset. Now, most of that stuff after five or ten years has about a zero value. It's whatever yard sale value would be. And if you stuck it out at a yard sale, a lot of that stuff isn't going to bring a couple of hundred bucks, and that's it. Next thing that's on our list, and the reason I put it at the end, is there. it is a big subject. I'm going to try to give a generalized overview. And then one of these days, I'll probably just do a whole show on it. And it's alimony. And it's provided for under Section 61.08 of the Florida Statutes. There is basically four types of alimony in Florida. There is technically a fifth one, but it's it's not one that we deal with at a per at a final hearing it's one that's done early on and I'll I'll hit on it at the end if we've got time remaining but the four basic types of alimony that we're dealing with there's bridge the gap alimony and what that is is it's a, a type of alimony that's awarded from one party to the other and it's viewed as helping transition from being married to single in other words it's kind of like a bridge going from one landmass to another over water you're helping that person get over the troubled water section and get back on with their life that's on the other side of the bridge, so therefore called the bridge the gap. It is a short-term alimony that's awarded, and it is not modifiable. It is only intended to help jumpstart or get the other party going until they can take care of themselves again if they are people that make substantially less or made no money at all, but they make substantially less than the other party. And at that point, it's just to help them get going so that they can help take care of themselves. 
The next one is called rehabilitative alimony. And what that does is it helps the spouse to get to a capacity to become self-sufficient. You go, well, that's what bridge the gap is. No. Rehabilitative alimony is is more of one of those to help them develop life skills. In other words, if they were married for a long time, and I say long time, even say 10 or 11 or 12 years, and they had one of them was a stay-at-home parent. I'm not going to be sexist in this point and say male or female. But one of them was a stay-at-home parent, and they had given up finishing their college degree in order to stay home to help take care of the kids. And I'm giving you a, a, what I call the kind of the perfect example on this. If they had another year or two of college to go to finish going to college, the court can award what's called rehabilitative alimony to help pay for that college and or sustain themselves for the period it would take to be able to get themselves going again. If it takes three years even, it could be it could be longer. It's whatever the court sees necessary to help get that person um, to see if they can't get themselves back on to path of either higher education or advancement in employment. So they've just started a business, and they need a little help getting that business going for a couple of years with some income coming in every morning or every month that would pay the necessary bills of their personal life uh, so that they don't have to worry about actually having a lot of money coming out of the business. That's another example of how that would work. So it's called rehabilitative alimony. Now, it can be modified. Unlike bridge the gap that cannot be modified, Rehabilitative alimony can be modified if there's what's called a substantial change of circumstances. And the example of something like that would be a person gets into college and all of a sudden instead of three years, or say let's use two years, instead of two years to finish the degree, uh, maybe the college has changed the requirements on them midstream. And now it's going to take three to four years for them to be able to complete the coursework to put them on a path of a successful career. That person could come into court and allege, and if they can prove that the the college changed the coursework on them, and it's going to take longer now to get uh, that degree to help put them in the path of making sufficient income, the court can then modify the original court order to include additional time to be able to do it. Or... If the cost factor of that coursework, and again, this is there's a lot of other examples. I'm trying to give you the easiest one. If the cost of that coursework substantially changed, say they were charging $100 a credit hour, and all of a sudden they changed it to $150 a credit hour, which has happened and does happen within our, our wonderful educational higher learning facilities, then that would be a, a substantial change of circumstances because of the cost factor of those credit hours uh, and the overall cost of doing it. And so that would give them a basis to come in and ask for additional monies or additional time, either one, whichever was necessary. That makes it modifiable, which is part of the differences between it and bridge the gap. Uh, the next type of alimony that we're dealing with is durational alimony. Uh, it's a relatively new concept in Florida. And what it does is it provides an economic assistance to one spouse for a set time period, uh, but not one that exceeds the length of the marriage. In other words, and I'm just going to throw up another example. 
one spouse makes two and a half times or two times even what the other one makes. Um, and say we've got one where they're making, one's making 60 and the other one's making 30. And they've been married for 12 or 13 years. The court can order at that point in time that one provide a certain, the one that makes more money provide a certain time period at a certain amount of money to the other party. Uh, and the idea is to try to, again, transition but help that party to continue to live the lifestyle that they had before the marriage ended. Uh, It's not to make them destitute all of a sudden. So the court could easily order for maybe three, four, five years that the party that makes $60,000 a year pay $1,000 a month even, and that would be $12,000 a year. Well, that would reduce their income down to $48,000, and it would increase the other one to $42,000. It's not equalization, but it is helping the one to get close to the other. Uh, And it also can be modified if there's a substantial change in circumstances. Uh, But it's length, uh, and it's only in an amount that it can be modified, though, not in the length. Once the court dictates that this award is for five years, say, and, and that's assuming, say, the marriage was 12, and the court cannot award it for longer than the marriage, so say the court gives it for five years, the party could come in and ask for more money, but they can't ask for it to be extended out. It can't change the time periods on it. That's why it's called durational alimony. And the last one is the one that so many people hate to hear the word of, and that's called permanent alimony. And that's the, the concept behind it is where one spouse would be incapable of taking care of themselves at the level they had during the course of the marriage, or at least trying to be close to it, uh, and their need will last for the rest of their lives. We used to see this a lot in long-term marriages. Anything that was, tw- you know, I'm using as kind of a, a rule of thumb, but it's not hard and fast. 20-plus-year 20 uh, marriages, one was the primary provider for the family. The other one was not. The one stayed at home. Well, okay, you, you, after 20 years, it's tough for that one to go out and make the same kind of money that the one that's been working for 20 years, say, at the same job has been making. So if one's been making 100000 and the other one either didn't work at all or made twenty, and it's a 20-year marriage or in that range of time period, you're going to be talking about permanent alimony. It doesn't have to be a long-term marriage. It can be a short-term involving a disability as well. That's another time that, or thing that we have to look at is if during the marriage one of the parties became disabled. So... Uh, And the court has to make a determination or has to look at whether any other alimony is fair and reasonable under the circumstances. So in other words, the court's going to be looking at durational. uh, The court's going to be looking at bridge the gap and rehabilitative. And again, generally speaking, we are looking at permanent alimony on longer-term marriages or one where there has been a disability that occurs. It It could be from a car accident. It could be from a regular disease that the person just developed, but you can't leave them destitute, and that's why the court looks for permanent alimony then, is to help take care of them under those circumstances. And that's, you know, when we're talking about disabilities, that, that can be a much shorter term in a marriage. could be three, four, five years, could be two years even. But the court looks to see if other alimonies will work first, and if it won't, 
that's when we end up seeing permanent alimony being awarded. Last alimony I'm going to touch base with on a little bit here, it's not considered to be one of the big four because it's what we call temporary alimony. And basically what it is is one of the awards that happens before the divorce is granted. Uh, and it's ordered for purposes of trying to help one spouse uh, while the litigation is ongoing. In other words, for they got you know they still got to be living somewhere. And if they are not making the same type of money that the other party is uh, to be able to pay for lights, uh, water, uh, rental, or actually a house payment, whatever, car payments, insurances, I mean, there's all kinds of things that have to be paid for, then the court can order what's called temporary alimony, uh, and it will stay in place pending the litigation being resolved. Some of these cases can take years to finish depending on how many kids we're talking about, how much assets we're talking about. And quite frankly, it can also depend on what the other attorney is like that's on the other side of the case. I do look at my cases and see who's involved on the other side when I can, if they already have got somebody, because it makes a big difference in what I have to ultimately charge on the case because I know what's going to be involved. It's been a pleasure talking to you today, and you've been listening to The Legal Legal Show here on Talk Radio 96.7 FM and 1430 AM, and I look forward to talking to you again next week.